and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I find something interesting I'd like to learn about, and then I'm going to go down all the interesting rabbit holes, and then of course I'll teach it to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Today, we are talking about the colors of the sky, and how they come to be, and why physically that's Mm -hmm. the case. Um, What I'm trying to say is there's physics there's going to be a good amount of physics in this podcast. Excellent. I, yeah, I know you're looking forward to it. I am, I wouldn't say dreading it, but like hoping I can adequately ex- adequately explain it without just confusing other people. Sure. Or people, you know, <laughs> understanding it more than me and being like, you did not explain that very well. So we'll see. I'm going to do my very best. So we're going to get into some risky territory. But how about you teach me something? Um, All right. So this is one of those topics where it's like, oh, you know that thing that you were taught as a kid? That's not right. Right. Common Um, theme for today? uh, Well, I think it's just a common theme in general when I start to research things. Sure. But um, the colors of the sky are... uh, somewhat complex kind of interplay of the the sunlight and earth's atmosphere and like i said physics so you know refraction and reflection and all these cool things um the ancient greeks uh plato aristotle they're the first to write about their theories uh with you know color and the relationship with meteorological phenomena um and then it took scientists a lot of centuries maybe a millennia after that to kind of get the science um, even started Okay. about it. Um, but in ancient Greece, fun fact, the sky, they didn't describe it as blue. Mm. And that is not like the myths suggest because they couldn't see the color blue. Hmm. Or, There's a myth about that? Yeah. I'm the myth is that ancient one. Greeks couldn't see the color blue um, okay. because they call the sky bronze. Um, or there is the myth they didn't have a word for blue, but they had lots of words for blue. Um, in fact, they used the word glaucos to refer to Athena's light blue eyes. And they had other words for deeper blues, darker blues. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, it's not that none of those reasons. Okay. And the sky was blue, by the way. It's not because the sky was a different color as another sure. <laughs> internet theory. QI, Stephen Fry made it seem like, you know... Oh, what color? You know, they ask those tricky questions. Oh, yeah. what color was the sky in ancient Greece? And when they answer blue, they're like, no, you're wrong. You lose points. But, like, it was blue. Mm-hmm. That's a stupid question. Okay. Anyways, they said it was bronze. Uh, time and time again, they referred to it like that in mostly stories and poetry. Um, for example, Homer refers to a bronze sky three times, like twice in the Iliad and once in the Odyssey. Um, so why did they refer to the sky as bronze? And why don't we have evidence of them calling it blue? Um, well, one reason is that bronze was used symbolically, um, like as a term, uh, and it becomes kind of more obvious if you look at the other ways Homer used the word bronze in okay. his, in his epics. Uh, he, for example, in the Iliad, he describes, quote, the great hearted bronze voiced stentor, 
Um, so like, yeah, bronze wasn't a literal thing. Um, but another theory is that like, there are some other ancient cultures that would use metals to describe the brightness of things. Mm -hmm. And so instead of thinking about the sky in colors, they were thinking of the sky in brightness. Okay. So they referred to it as bronze because it was incredibly bright, like shiny bronze plates. Um, and then along with that fun fact is if you don't lacquer bronze, it turns blue. It turns like a... Hmm. cloudy a little bit greenish but blue like a very a blue blue a blue colored blue okay so um maybe they had that interesting connection between blue sure. and bronze uh so i don't know we don't know for sure but i think we should jump in and find out why the sky is actually blue we should mm -hmm. um, or bronze and all those other colors that it turns yeah um so again as children we're taught things incorrectly maybe just to make adults lives easier or maybe because they actually think that's the truth maybe. but like you know hands up if you were taught it was the reflection of the blue water yeah. that made the sky blue um this is an audio medium so i cannot see whose hands are up but i'm gonna but go ahead and assume that a lot of you um had your hand up at least in spirit you probably didn't actually put it up because well, maybe you're not a nerd like me i did just raise my hand you physically. did Yes, I'll attest to that. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you may have you may have guessed it, but that that's wrong. That is not the type of reflection we are going to be talking about here. Um, scattering is the physical phenomena that describes why the sky is blue. So scattering is exactly what it sounds like. Light hits something and is deflected in different directions. Um, when we're talking about the sky specifically, we're talking about sunlight hitting atoms in the upper atmosphere. Um, the atom would absorb a single photon of light and then radiate it in a different direction. That is scattering. So we owe most of our colored atmospheric, I'm going to use the word phenomenon again, to different types of scattering. Um, like blue sky, red sunset, white clouds, okay. all of that. So the type of scattering responsible for blue sky is called Rayleigh scattering, but it wasn't actually until until relatively recently we figured this out. Well, I don't know if you know who that dude is, but we'll we'll talk about him. Don't worry. Okay. Um. So in 1672, Isaac Newton wrote a letter to the Royal Society in London, talking about his experiments with light, what he'd been doing. Um. He told them white light is made up of a mix of different colored lights. And he used prisms to split the light. And that different colors in the white light bend as they travel from the air into the glass prism. Mm -hmm. We're going to get back into this later when we talk about rainbows. Or um, Pink Floyd covers, album covers. I wasn't actually planning on mentioning that, so good thing you brought it up. Uh, we have to get it in there somewhere, yeah. yeah. So, you know, that bending is called refracting. Um, so he described... The end of the color spectrum with the shortest wavelength bending more than the end with the longest wavelength. Right. Okay. So that's what separates the colors and creates that spectrum that we see. So with how we think of the colors of light today, that translates into the violet end is going to be bending more yep. than the red end, um, which makes sense if you think about how a rainbow is shaped. Right. Violet on one end, red on the other. But violet, violet being more, more bent to complete that like right. inner arc is what I'm trying to say. Um, so then it took another 200 years after Newton's prism experiments for Lord Rayleigh, who was a physicist, to demonstrate this scattering mechanism that makes the sky blue. So 
it, yeah, it was pretty recent in the grand scheme of things. Sure. So in the years between Newton and Rayleigh, scientists, you know, did a lot of observations of the sky. They noticed the blue color of the sky wasn't constant. Um, blue is deeper, the color higher in the sky. And then it kind of fades to white towards the horizon. I don't know right. if you've noticed that in your daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, explorers started to travel further. They climbed the highest mountains. And they noticed the sky is a deeper shade of blue at higher altitudes. They're really puzzled. Of course. <laughs> Why might that be? So they invented the cyanometer so they could take measurements um, while they traveled around and compare their measurements of how blue the sky was. Now, a cyanometer sounds fancy. I guess so. It's not. It's not at all. I was like, oh, what is this? And I looked it up and I was like, oh, I see. So um, some guy whose last name is De Sassur, maybe? Okay. Okay, he was, a Swiss, still fancy. he was a Swiss physicist and mountain climber, which, of course, you lived in Switzerland. What else do you do? Yeah. Um, he invented the cyanometer in 1789, and his cyanometer had 53 sections. So it's literally just like a ring with sections that have different colors on them, and you just hold it up and compare it to the sky. Sure. So, yeah. like, you have, like, black to white and then in the middle there's all these different shades of blue dyed with the prussian blue dye just in different shades and you just hold it up and you're like oh this is shade 29 yeah yeah so it is not at all fancy but it was helpful but it's 59 it parts it did the job uh no 53 53 well, less fancy than you're right yeah, yeah. <laughs> so de Saussure correctly concludes that the color of the sky is dependent on the amount of particles like water droplets and ice crystals that are suspended in the atmosphere. Um, so good for him. Nailed it. So the phenomenon called Rayleigh scattering is named after its discoverer, John William Strutt, third Baron Rayleigh. Hmm. Yes. Oh, you had me puzzled for a moment there. Yeah. People didn't just, just go by real, their actual names in yeah. England. You're Rayleigh puzzled you for a moment. Them. Oh, God. No. Oh, no. Um, okay. Moving on from that. Uh, yeah, you don't go by your own name. You go by a title, obviously. Yeah, Otherwise, obviously. you're a filthy commoner. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was a physicist, and he was known for a number of significant scientific discoveries that he made towards the end of the 19th century. Did you know one of them? Is that why you acted excited when you heard that name? No. I'm going to mention I've, I've one of them. I've heard the name before, but okay. this is not familiar. So, he discovered argon, and he won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1904 for that. Oh. So that's the only one of his accomplishments I wrote about. I'm assuming that they were relatively aware of other noble gases at that time. Just he found that one. I don't know. I don't know why you would make that assumption. I have no idea what any of them were identified. He yeah. discovered argon. That's all I got. Okay. okay. So around the year 1870, he was the first to show that small particles appear blue because they scatter light. Okay. Okay. So light has wavelengths. In the range 380 nanometers to 750 nanometers. Lord Rayleigh um, showed that when you have a small particle, so the diameter has to be smaller than the wavelength of light. Mm-hmm. The particle has to be spherical. So a spherical particle with a small diameter cause particles of light to scatter in all directions. If the particles were larger than the wavelength of light, then we have a whole different type of scattering. And that's going to be my scattering. And we'll talk about that later. Okay. Um, so imagine that light makes every individual particle, like those tiny particles you see, act like a tiny light bulb. 
without scattering, we just see the sun is like this ball of white light. Mm-hmm. And everything else would be dark. Right. Yeah. Okay. So with scattering, um, the light from the sun, you know, is turning on all these little light bulbs that are shining into other light bulbs, basically. And then all the light bulbs turn blue. But why is that? Why do they turn blue? Why not red or green or... Yeah. Which, of course, are colors of the sky. They are. But I was specifically talking about our daytime blue sky. So first we need to do just a tiny lesson about light. So when we're talking about colors of light, the longer the wavelength is of the light, the shorter the frequency of the wave. Mm -hmm. The frequency is directly related to the amount of energy in the wave. So what this means is the higher the frequency, the higher the energy, the lower the wavelength, the higher the energy. Because lower wavelength is higher frequency. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the important point to take, short wavelengths go with high energy. And the scattering effect is going to increase quite a lot as the energy of the light increases. So higher energy light will scatter more. Okay. Okay. So shorter wavelengths of light are scattered more because they have high energy. Yes. All right. So which side of our light spectrum has shorter wavelengths? The blue-violet side. The violet. Violet would have the highest energy, shortest wavelengths. So it's going to be scattered the most. Um, So... The sunlight reaching our eyes has a high ratio of those short blue-violet wavelengths compared to the medium and longer ones. So we perceive the sky as being blue. But why don't we have a violet sky? Turns out, I mean, good question. our eyes just aren't very sensitive to seeing violet light. It's yeah. just too far on one end of the visible spectrum. So we just have bad eyes. Yeah. wonder if other animals see the sky as being violet. Into more of the, like, ultraviolet range that we Yeah, birds. Who knows how birds, well. <laughs> birds see the sky. But it would be really cool if we could see purple sky, I think. I like purple. Of course. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that it... Yeah. What you're saying. There's probably animals that do see it because it's more... They see more into the ultraviolet. So that's the color that they probably see it as. Yeah. Predominantly, I guess. Right. So... But the scattering of blue light is also why the sun looks yellow in the sky when, in fact, it is white, right? White light. It, right. Pure white light. So because the Earth's atmosphere scatters blue light more efficiently than red light, we're going to see a slight deficit in the blue light and an increase of the yellow, orange, and red light spectrum coming from the sun. So we see it as yellow. Yeah. So... Compared to the blue sky, clouds look white because they have larger particles. Like water particles are larger than the particles of gas, you know, in the atmosphere. In the atmosphere. Um, So they, that's going to be the my scattering, which we will go into, but basically that just scatters light equally. It's not really scattering. It's non-selective. doesn't select different, you know, wavelengths of light. Sure. So clouds are white. Um, But when rain clouds get much heavier, light from the sun is going to have a hard time penetrating all the way to the bottom. So that's why you get the gray color before the clouds rain. Yeah, where it's not selective, but 
there's just actually not like a lot of light getting through. Yeah, it's just blocking it basically. Yeah. Um, so Lord Rayleigh describes a scattering that makes the sky blue, but to him, he he never figured out which small particles in the atmosphere did the scattering. Okay. It took longer for scientists to figure out it was you know the oxygen and nitrogen in the air that were scattering the light. Um, we've also since realized that a dark background, like the dark of outer space, is actually required for that blue color to be perceived. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. So why does the sky get lighter closer to the horizon and why does it seem bluer in the mountains? Is that the is next a good question. question. Um, so we can't explain this just talking about Rayleigh scattering because that's only talking about particles, like I said, much smaller than the wavelength of light. Um, and I, just to put this in perspective... Um, like I said, wavelengths are 400 to 750 nanometers, and the gas molecules we're talking about have dimensions like, you know, diameter of one nanometer. And again, keep in mind, a nanometer is a billionth of a meter. Yeah, very, very small. Right. But the molecules of gases aren't the only particles hanging around in the atmosphere, right? We've got aerosols, we've got dust, we've got smoke, we've got liquid, we've got minuscule like ice crystals, bacteria and pollen float around. Um, but those are typically in the lower atmosphere because they're heavier. Yeah. So when they're in that lower near to the horizon spot, we're going to use a different scattering model, you know, those larger particles. So there's a German phys- physicist named Gustav Adolf Mai, uh, born in 1868 and died in 1957, if you... You know, care to know. Okay. So he was investigating this kind of scattering. And he figured out that the intensity of the light scattered by bigger particles is completely, like, independent of a wavelength. Wavelength doesn't matter here. It's, again, not selective. It doesn't differentiate individual wavelength colors, you know. Scatters all wavelengths the same. So that's what we see as white. We perceive that as, you know, all the colors together. Um, in my scattering, the white light remains white after having been scattered by the aerosols. And the concentration of aerosols is highest, closest to the ground, like I was saying. So the blue color of the sky is lightest, like closer to white, close to the horizon. Um, and then aerosols get washed away by rain. Not completely, of course. So after it rains, you'll notice a deepening of the blue color in the sky. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the blue of the sky appears deeper in the mountains because there's a lower percentage of large aerosols found at higher altitudes. Again, because they're just lower down. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sunset. I'm going to go to sunset and sunrise. Same thing. Um, You've probably seen a sunrise or sunset in your life. I have, yes. Actually, both. I'm assuming most people have. Um. And you've probably seen some beautiful pinks, purples, reds, and oranges. That's the, the colors we're talking about here. And scattering is still what's causing these colors. Um, but the difference is the angle of the light. Okay. So during the day, the sun is overhead, right? And its light's going to travel directly down through the atmosphere to reach us. But at sunrise and sunset, the sun is close to the horizon, The distance the light has to travel then through the atmosphere is much farther than during the daytime. Yeah. So at the sunset or sunrise, the light has to travel more than 30 times as far as it does during midday. Yeah. Okay. 
So during that longer journey, the blue light is scattered away first. And then all that's left to reach us is the longer wavelength. So that's the other side of our okay. color spectrum, the yellows, reds, even purple um, side of the spectrum. So we also have to talk about the like concentration of those aerosols, those particles in the atmosphere. Um, because if they weren't there, we would just get the yellows or oranges. The more particles in the lower atmosphere, small ones, smaller aerosols, okay. are going to further increase the Rayleigh scattering. And then we're going to get more of the red all the way to the red side of the spectrum. When it has to travel through more and more and more. More and more small particles. Okay, makes yeah. sense. Um, and so you might expect the upper part of the sky to get like light and pale colored once the sun starts to move towards the horizon. Okay. But next time you look at a sun, it's easier to see at sunset, but sunrise or sunset, if you look straight up, it's actually pretty blue. Yeah. Okay. That is not about Rayleigh scattering. That is a different mechanic. So the Earth's ozone layer is going to be why we see that blue color above us. Okay. Ozone is well known for absorbing UV light. That's kind of what we like it for, right? Yeah. Um, it protects us from the yeah. sun and all the cancer. Yep. Yeah. So ozone absorbs the longer red and orange wavelengths of light, which is called chappiest absorption. Ooh. That's Special fancy. physics effect. I'm assuming there's a dude named Chappius out there. Uh, it's or, named or after. Was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, probably was. <laughs> um, so that absorption does happen in the daytime too, but it's overpowered by the light from the Rayleigh scattering. There's just too much sunlight coming in. Um, at twilight, with the direct light gone, then the Chappius absorption becomes the dominant effect, creating our blue sky. But again, not at the angle towards the sun. You have to like. Advert your eyes away to see yeah, that Yeah, you're effect. looking up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Not at the horizon where the sun is at the moment. Makes sense. Um, but what else causes red skies? Because, you know, I don't know about where everyone else is listening from, but lately it seems like here we've had a lot of smoke-filled summers. Mm. Um, and I've noticed the sky being red or orange during particularly smoky daytimes. Yeah. Um, so the smoke particles from fires are much larger than, yeah. you know, the little gas molecules in the air normally. And again, so we've, we've got our my scattering going on. The short wavelengths of light can't penetrate through the heavy smoke. You know, there's a few things going on to produce that red color. Blues and greens get filtered out. Only the long wavelengths can make it through all that smoke. Um, so that's why it looks red or orange. And the same thing happens like when, you know, a dust storm or a volcanic eruption. I found a really cool article about this, actually. Okay. So in April of 1815, a volcano called Mount Tambora explodes and kills about 10,000 people in Indonesia. Oh, This wow. is the largest known eruption in recorded human history. You've probably heard of it because it's what caused the year that without a summer the next year in 1816 right around the yeah. world okay yes so art historians think that the sunset colors in some of artist william turner's famous paintings were inspired by the appearance of the sky after this eruption 
And if you hadn't heard of the artist William Turner, I hadn't either. But I mentioned it to, you know, an artist I know. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had most definitely heard of him. He's very okay. famous. So we Great. should look at pictures that he painted. Yeah. Yeah. So they did, uh, along the same vein, they did a new analysis of Edvard Munch's The Scream and proved that the eruption of a different Indonesian volcano in 1883 is what inspired the background of that famous painting. Okay. The colors in the background. Um, so from, they not, like analyzed a lot of different factors and they also found his personal journal. So they're, they're very sure that, about that this. That could help too. Yeah. Sure. Okay. <laughs> they could even tell that he was looking towards the Southwest to view what were called the Krakatoa twilights. Cause it was the Krakatoa eruption. Um, that appeared in the sky in the winter of 1883 to 1884. They could tell what angle he was looking at to view it from because of his painting. Cool. And his journals. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So, that seems like an overriding variable, but fine. Yeah. <laughs> they said they had lots of evidence, okay? Um, they didn't list it all for me because I didn't pay to read the article. Well, and what more evidence do you need other than they have his journal? <laughs> well, there was a really cool study in 2014. Okay. Okay. So... The scientists looked at hundreds of sunset paintings created between the year 1500 and the year 2000. And during that period, there was more than 50 volcanic eruptions we know about around the world. And based on the colors of the skies in the artwork, the team calculated the amount of aerosols in the air. Okay. Then they compared those estimates to the amount of ash particles actually present in the atmosphere at the time of the paintings by using ice core samples and other types of measurements like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Okay. And they found that the ratio of red to green paint used in the sunset representation corresponded with the actual level of volcanic aerosols in the atmosphere. And this was true no matter which painter or which school of painting was responsible for the artwork. Very cool. And in their analysis, they found that volcanoes aren't the only factor that can cause those effects. Sure. So, you know, atmospheric pollution is obviously an issue and has caused similar effects to the sky. So the researchers grouped paintings into 50-year intervals, and they could see the increasing effect of atmospheric pollution over time just by looking at the sunset colors that artists used um, after they factored out the temporary volcanic um, activity. Activity, yeah. yeah. Then, to verify how well artists were doing capturing the changes in sky color, the team asked a painter, a Greek painter, Paniotis Tetsis, for help. And he was asked to paint sunsets during and after a 2010 dust storm that was blowing in from the Sahara without knowing when the storm was coming in. He was just supposed to paint. And they recorded that. So they compared the ratio of red to green in his paintings, both during the storm and after the dust had settled down with actual photographs of the sky. Okay. And they found that he could reproduce the color ratio as well as an expensive camera. Cool. Which... There was a quote from that artist I said, William Turner, who once said, my business is to paint what I see, not what I know is there. Okay. So not only they found could artists accurately record what they saw, um, master artists could recreate what they saw with a very high degree of accuracy, even though they were creating art like much after the eruptions occurred. Because those Krakatoa twilights I was telling you about that Edvard Munch watched in 1883... Well, that's 10 years before he came up with his final version of The Scream. There were apparently some versions, but in 1893. I didn't know that. um, Very cool. Somehow the brain has a color memory. 
Sure. When you're a trained artist, I'm assuming. Oh. But like... It's like a trait they gain. I thought that was super cool. Yeah. That's cool. Level up through your experience and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, have you heard that saying about red skies at night? I think I've heard multiple ones. Oh. See, I had only heard one version, but apparently the original is Red Sky at Night, Shepherd's Delight. Not Sailor's Delight? Right? Yeah. Red Sky in the Morning, Shepherd's Warning. That first appears in the Bible. Oh. (laughs) So, before I heard it. Probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. Some other people had heard it before you at that point. Probably. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it first appears in the Bible in the book of Matthew. Um, yeah, I'd only heard Red Sky at Night, Sailor's Delight, Red Sky in the Morning, Sailor's Warning. Yeah. Which makes sense, because you're obviously at the mercy of weather when you're out on the ocean. Um, you are, yes. Um, so yeah, it's it's an old, old saying, and it kind of helped people prepare for the next day's weather. And that was pretty accurate, um, because more red in the sky can indicate more particulates, you know, more sure. clouds, and it's a good way to predict weather. So what it really is, is that a red sky at sunset means high pressure is moving in from the west. And that means the next day will usually be dry and pleasant. Okay. If the red sky happens in the morning, it means that the red sky is appearing due to a high pressure weather system having already moved east. Meaning the good weather has passed and you're probably going to be wet. Yeah. It's going to be windy. It's a low pressure system. Yeah. So it was actually a pretty accurate way for them to predict what was going to happen. Now, I know we mentioned auroras in our magnetic field episode, but I really don't think you can do a colors of the sky episode and just not talk about them. Yeah, you'd be pretty remiss. So, um, sorry if this sounds familiar to you, but I'm going to talk about them again. (laughs) So the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis, happen close to the North Pole, usually a high latitude, but can be viewed as far south as Scotland, which okay. to me is not that far south, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. The Southern Lights are the Aurora Australis, and they're, you know, down by the South Pole in Australia. By Australis. By Australia, <laughs> yes. So the Aurora is caused by streams of charged particles from the sun. They travel towards the Earth, and they mostly bounce off our magnetic field but some are deflected towards the North or South Poles. When they get there, they're going to make the oxygen and nitrogen atoms excited. When those atoms are excited, they're going to move to a higher energy state. Mm -hmm. After some time, they want to move back to their more stable, lower energy state. And to do that, they are, well, as kind of an offshoot what am i trying to say like a byproduct of moving down an energy level they're going to emit light yeah they'll yeah admit some like release energy out and let electrons drop in energy levels to more stable yeah so that's the same way that neon lights work i mean just on a much larger scale we're talking about auroras yeah um so the oxygen atoms actually produce the green color yeah and nitrogen produces reds and violets when it comes down a level. Okay. Now, speaking again of things that absolutely must be covered if we're talking about the colors of the sky, is we're going to talk about rainbows. Yes. We, I mean, we already did a little bit. I know. And then when, I, when we did that, now. I said, we're going to talk about rainbows later. Good. Again, remember when I said that? No, but oh. I believe you. 
<laughs> do you even listen to me when I talk? Always. Yeah, you do. Okay, so previously in our mythology of dragons, it wasn't called that. It was like comparative mythology, and then it was like something, a cool Tolkien quote yeah. about dragons. Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, historically, we t- we talked about how rainbows have been notable and significant to people in the past. Yeah, we. it's true. And related to dragons. That as well. If that makes you curious, you should go listen to that episode. <laughs> okay, so some ancient cultures felt like rainbows were bad omens. Others thought they were good. Uh, health, spirituality, healing, those type of things. Uh, an ancient Amazonian culture <laughs> thought that if you closed your mouth when a rainbow was visible, you could avoid disease. Well, or rather, okay. you should close your mouth when rainbows are visible. I don't know. Maybe I thought rainbows got in your mouth and caused disease. I don't yeah, know. I was going to say there's, there. There feels like there's an inverse theory to you know what you're saying. Yeah, I I agree, but I I mm, can't confirm. You know. Sure. Yeah, in Bulgaria, a person walking under a rainbow would be able to think with the mind of another gender. How do you? Well. Do you have to observe someone walking under a rainbow? Because it's really hard to walk under a rainbow yourself. Right? I would say it's dang near impossible since the angle is important. But we'll get into that. We will. Of course. As if science is the number one thing when it comes to mythology (laughs) and folklore. Yes, I know. Very true. Ancient tribes in Honduras and Nicaragua called rainbows a name that translates to the devil is vexed. Okay. Aboriginal tribes uh, in Australia thought a rainbow serpent could be a creator or a destroyer. That's, we talked about rainbow serpents in Australia. We did, yeah. In our dragons episode. Um, In Norse mythology, you probably know of a thing that is like a rainbow in Norse mythology. Yeah, the bridge. Yeah. To the The Bifrost. Bifrost, that's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Rainbows were said to be a bridge from Earth to Asgard, the land of the gods, in Norse mythology. Um, In Ireland, you probably know this one. In Ireland. Little short guys. Red beards. (laughs) I don't know if they always looked like that, but yes. A leprechaun is said to guard a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. In Hindu culture, the god Indra was said to shoot arrows of lightning from rainbows. And for the Cherokee peoples, the rainbow was said to form the hem of the sun's coat. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Um, But rainbows, um, while there are scientific explanations, are as much about perception as they are about science. Okay. Right. Like, color is a subjective experience is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Um. So they're kind of about how we choose to describe colors. That part? In the cultures of the moment. Okay. So one of the oldest depictions of rainbows, or the things that we now call rainbows, is in Australia near Ubir Rock. Um, There's an Aboriginal painting that's more than 2,000 years old that shows a multicolored rainbow. It's, It's only yellow and orange, but it's clearly a rainbow. Hmm. Aristotle wrote... There are never more than two rainbows at one time. Each of them is three-colored. Oh, yes. So, I mean, wrong and kind of wrong, but again, subjective. But the first one's yeah. wrong. There's never more than double rainbow. I mean, I don't even know if he meant that. He might have only met in one location when there could be rainbows all over the place. But okay. I don't know what he meant. It was a long time ago. I can't ask. 
Yeah, so his three colored supposition was actually accepted by the scholars and scientists and the public for a lot of years. Um, and that might sound weird to you since, yeah. you know, we see more than three colors personally. Yeah, but I, I could see you like taking the strongest or most uh, readily identifiable colors and then just saying, hey, it's that color till it bleeds into the other one. And Right. The point is, the longer you look at a rainbow, the more you see a lack of definition um, between which color is which and why have we arbitrarily decided that that's, you know, the yeah. end of that color and the beginning of this color. Yeah. And then kind of these random decisions in history start to make a little more sense. So the Greek poet and philosopher Xenophanes thought rainbows were purple, yellow, green, and red. Purple, yellow, green, and red. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, artwork from 13th century Persia showed rainbows with three or four very dull colors. Yeah. Okay. Which leads to the question, how many colors does it take to make the rainbow recognizable in a well, drawing? Apparently two. The answer is none. Oh. Because we found a lot of old black and white pictures oh. and paintings that we know are rainbows. Okay. Sure. Right? Um, just by shape and context, you know something is a rainbow even without the color. Yeah. Okay. This is more philosophy than science yeah. here, but I thought you totally. would like this. You Th- like that philosophy. Was a good one. Rainbow colors weren't codified until uh, certain someone came along who we're going to get to. Roy G. Biff? In a second. Is that his name? No, it's not. Um, (laughs) Now you've thrown me off. Where was I? Okay, so old rainbow paintings were two to three to four colors. The colors change depending on the artist and the time. In European artwork, lots of rainbows were tri-colored, and they're like a muddy green, a dull yellow, and rose-colored. And then eventually blue came to be added, but it wasn't before. Even okay. though there is quite a few mm, shades on the blue side. Yeah. Um, a lot of dull ochre colors appear in the early depiction of rainbows. Occasionally beige. And like beige. I said, black and gray also. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can see the beige one for sure. Yeah. So scientifically speaking, though. <laughs> Let's get back into that. Scientifically okay. speaking. Um So the mechanics of rainbows have been studied since ancient times. The Greeks, the Greek philosophers were aware uh, that reflection played a role in forming a rainbow and they had some understanding about refraction. Yeah. Um, Aristotle was one of the first scholars who was um, kind of accurate in his observations about rainbows. Good for him. So in the 4th century BCE, he knew rainbows were the result of refracted light bouncing off water droplets. It's a good start, yeah. Seems like that's quite a bit of the basis of, you know, the science in general. Yeah. Then in the 3rd century, Alexander of Aphrodisius described the way that in a double rainbow, raindrops reflect the sun's light inward from the rainbow arc and also kind of inversely out of the second rainbow. So there's a dark band seen between the two bows. And the sky below the lower rainbow, the primary rainbow, and above that secondary higher bow is actually brighter as a result. And we call that now Alexander's Band. Okay. Why not? A basic scientific explanation, though, for how a rainbow works 
didn't come about until the 14th century CE. That's so we took a long yeah. time making any progress there. Yeah, that is a long time. Um, a lot of the websites um, and things I saw did not mention him, but a few did. So I'm gonna I'm gonna mention that it was a co-discovery. Um, independently though. Oh, okay. Two scientists. There's a Persian physicist, Kamal Aldin Al-Farisi. And then there's a German physicist and monk, Theodoric of Freiburg, that both in the 14th century seem to discover the mechanic independently of each other. Um, again, not surprisingly, I found out much more information about Theodoric and his writings. Sure. You know, the Western world and the Eastern. Yeah. It's not okay. surprising, but I'm, I'm not really going to talk about this Persian physicist. I don't really know as much. We're just going to focus on old Theodoric here. Uh, in 1304, he was watching what happened to sunlight as it passed through a large globe filled with water. And he documented the reflection and the refraction as the sun shone through the water. Um, the rainbow was divided into bands that have the different colors so he was the first one that really got all that. Newton didn't do that first. He was doing a lot of experiments. Okay. Um, in the 17th century is when Newton was doing his experiments, the 1600s. And he was establishing that refraction causes white light to separate into its wavelengths. Like I said, he was not the first to do that. But he was the first to show a second prism could recombine the colors back into white light. Mm, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he also demonstrated that the individual colors were constant when, when shone through the prism again. Um, and that was in contrast to what they thought at the day, which was uh, at the time, which was that the prism itself was producing the colors. Oh, not that it was an inherent property of all white light in itself. Right. That so like light Newton was made wasn't, up of. Yeah, yeah. Newton wasn't the first to do a lot of things, but he came he did a lot of, of important things. Um, so, Newton's contribution meant we now understood that white light is a mix of color light and that each light is refracted to a different extent. Uh, different colors corresponded to different wavelengths and are refracted to different, you know, degree. Yeah. Um, that separation of colors is called dispersion. Uh, also in the 17th century, Rene Descartes mm -hmm. sketched out the conditions required to observe a rainbow. So he put himself in this sketch. And importantly, he put the sun directly behind him and the light reflected from the raindrops ahead of him is going to concentrate between about 40.6 degrees and 42.4 degrees centered on where like the shadow of his head would be. Okay. Um, and so secondary rainbows are formed by double internal reflection. Light is reflected twice from the inner surface of the rainbow or raindrop, sorry, before leaving it. And that light is concentrated about 50.4 degrees to 53.6 degrees. So now we know all these very technical sciencey things about rainbows all of a sudden. Um, but I, I found this quote and I thought it was kind of cute. So English, the English poet John Keats um, was really worried that the scientific explanations would, quote, unweave a rainbow. Didn't want to know it would destroy yeah. all the mystery and yeah. the beauty because now we have all these technical degrees and like all that stuff. Um, a thing of myth becoming too well known. Yeah, too explained. Yeah. yeah. So back to Newton though for a second. Okay. So Newton labeled the rainbow's colors at first to be red, yellow, green, blue, and violet. Red, green, blue. Okay. There were yeah. five colors. Yeah. Okay. 
Later, he added orange and indigo. Mm. Seven colors. Um, but most people believe that that was not a scientific choice. So Newton liked the number seven. Oh. The musical scale has seven notes. To him, that was perfect. Yeah. We have seven days of the week. We have seven uh, planets at Newton's time. So, okay. you know, um, the number seven before Newton had for a long time been considered a mystical number. It symbolized perfection. It symbolized completeness. Yeah. Um, and that sort of mysticism actually fascinated Newton as much as science did. If anyone didn't know this, he was supremely like into that kind of magic. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so he thought that there should be seven colors in there. There must be seven colors. Not that he was making them up. He just so, thought, I need to find two more colors. Right. Basically. So he made some distinctions in certain places to ensure that there right. were seven. Like, like you didn't know he was into magical things. You know, he was super into alchemy and the philosopher's stone. Actually, I did know that he was into alchemy. Yes. Yeah. He wanted to turn metals into gold. Yeah. Um, anyways. Yeah. So like he had all these very mystical beliefs and a lot of people think that's why he added indigo. Um, writer and biochemist Isaac Asimov once said, quote, it is customary to list indigo as a color lying between blue and violet, but it has never seemed to me that indigo is worth the dignity of being considered a separate color. To my eyes, it seems merely deep blue. Yeah. I agree with you. I don't know what color indigo is. To this day, I don't know what color indigo is, Isaac Asimov. Even Newton admitted, quote, my own eyes are not very critical in distinguishing colors. <laughs> Yeah. So current, well, much more recent day science writer and astrophysicist Ethan Siegel said, going off of unique frequencies, there are more colors in a rainbow than there are stars in the universe or atoms in your body. But that goes far beyond what we can perceive. Yeah, right? exactly. Color is all about perception. Yeah. But since people are all individuals, it's quite interesting that to think about the fact that the person sitting there next to you viewing a rainbow with you probably doesn't perceive the colors the same way as you do. Um, and I did want to mention, speaking of British things, um, we say Roy G. Biv, right? That's how we remember yeah. here um, the the rainbow colors. But I found that in England, they're often taught as Richard of York gave battle in vain. That one's good too. Sure. I, I thought it was interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so our current understanding of rainbows and how they're formed in a technical physics understanding Apparently, many textbook explanations of rainbows are wrong, and a thorough description is still elusive. It's one of those things where everyone's like, you think you know, but we don't really know. <laughs> um, an atmospheric physicist said the rainbow has an undeserved reputation of having a simple explanation. Hmm. Yes. So I want to just like take a second and define reflection and refraction because they're the important they are things yeah. at play here. So reflection, I think you're probably very familiar with. It's the return of a wave. In yeah. this case, a light wave. Hits the surface and bounces back. When it encounters a different medium, it bounces back. Yes, that's Correct. You know, yes. that's that's yeah. the technical. Yeah. Refraction is the amount a light wave, again, any kind of wave, but we're talking about light waves, bends and changes direction when it passes through. A different medium. So yeah. instead of bouncing, we're talking about bending. Correct. In order to see a rainbow, three things must be present. We need rain or just like very wet atmosphere. Sure. We need sunshine and we need a person that is between the raindrops and the sun. Yeah. The sun has to be behind you. 
and the raindrops have to be in front of you. Yes, by definition of you being between them, yes. Yeah. Correct, yes. yes. The lower the sun is in the sky, so like in late afternoon, evening, or early morning, or whatever, the higher the arc of the rainbow will appear. Makes sense. Yes. So we see rainbows because of the geometry of a raindrop. The central idea is that each water droplet in the air is going to be acting as a mirror and a lens and a prism all at the same time. So when the sun shines from behind us into the rain, rays of light are going to enter the drop and they're going to refract inwards. So they're going to hit the back of the raindrop basically and bounce some direction back into the raindrop. Yep. Then they're going to be reflected and refracted again as they exit the raindrop. Yeah. And return to our eyes. So refraction is responsible, that second refraction, for splitting it into the colors that we see. Okay. The droplets are going to scatter the sunlight in every direction, but unevenly. But they're going to tend to focus the light 138 degrees from the incident direction. So from the sun, like from where it came from. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of pointing, which is not going to help anyone. I mean, it's helping me. It's fine. Yeah. (laughs) So those droplets that, you know, form this angle with the sun are going to look brighter. And together they are going to produce a ring. So there's a lot of droplets that aren't reflecting or refracting in that appropriate direction for you to see them. There's a lot out there. But technically... They're just not the one. You just don't see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So typically you only see the top half of the ring because there are not enough drops near the ground to fill out that bottom half. And what this ends up meaning is that a rainbow is just a distorted image of the sun. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um... If you look closely, next time you see a rainbow, you're going to see that outside the main bow is that darkened band of sky, that Alexander's band, and a second dimmer arc with the colors in a reverse order, like a reflection of the rainbow, basically. Um, Inside that main bow are greenish and purplish arcs known as supernumerary bows. Ooh. Right? That rainbow can vary in brightness, um, and it can split into multiple bows near the top. If you would view it through polarizing sunglasses, it's going to kind of disappear and reappear with the angles you move your head at. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Yeah. So that's not the only... I mean, if you're interested in supernumerary arcs, they're caused by wave interference. Okay. Yep. That was getting too physically for me. So I'm just kind of... I was out there. (laughs) Um. Ice crystals can have a similar but different effect. So when you think about a raindrop, it is a circle-ish. It is a sphere. Mostly, yeah. It is a sphere. Yeah. Um, when you think about an ice crystal, it is a crystal. Therefore not a sphere. Crystals don't generally form in a sphere. No. So um, they're usually shaped like a hexagon or like uh, even like a pencil, kind of like a rod. Yep. Because of that shape, they're going to cause a variety of different effects that are similar to a rainbow, but not like a rainbow. So Descartes showed us the preferred angle of light for the rainbows, as seen by an observer, is 42 degrees from the shadow of the head. But the hexagonal ice crystals reflect light to form a circle seen by the observer with an angle of 22 degrees or 45 degrees. And... 
I was confused about this until I Googled pictures of ice crystal halos. So if you're curious, Google ice crystal halos. They're all, you know, again, form the same way, the refraction and reflection. Um, and they can kind of look like all sorts of, I mean, they're mostly like kind of these weird slashes of bright white light. And then they're like colors of the edges. They can be kind of a circle. They can be kind of a bow, but like they don't look like rainbows, but they yeah. look pretty cool. So I would suggest Googling ice crystal halos. Okay. Um, and last thing I'm going to mention, because I had no idea this was a thing and very few people apparently have ever seen this effect. But there are specific times and places where you can see a green rim in the sky around the sun. Okay. I can't say I should be counted as one of the people that have seen that. Nah. It's called a green flash. Okay. It's very rare. Um, it's visible shortly after sunset or right before sunrise. It happens when the sun is almost entirely below the horizon, which is like the littlest bit, the edge, like the upper edge of the sun still visible. Um, and then for a second or two, you're going to see a green rim around that visible part of the sun. Okay. So that's caused by refraction. As the sun sets, sunlight travels through the atmosphere close to the ground where the atmosphere is thickest. Yeah. The red, orange, and yellow rays are the least refracted. These disappear first. Um, the violet, blue, and green rays are refracted the most, and they're still visible as the sun is slipping below the horizon. Um, but violet and blue rays are also scattered more strongly than green rays. So it's just the green rays that are going to reach us. It's just like the sweet point between those two effects. Right. But even so, you're not going to see the green rim unless there's some kind of effect and filter that you're viewing it through. Oh. So you can project the enlarged image onto a screen of some kind, but you'd have okay. to know when to capture it in the first place. Yeah. Or this is how people have seen it in nature. You can view it through a mirage. Okay. okay, so this is when I was like, what? What is going on here? Um, so according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, uh, mirage is an illusion that gives the appearance of a pool of water or mirror in which distant objects are seen inverted that is sometimes seen at sea, in the desert, or over a hot pavement that is caused by refraction or reflection of light passing through layers of air having different temperatures. Yeah. So, you know... When it's really, really hot out and the air is like kind of wavy looking and you're like, yeah. that's weird. Or like you look into the distance on the highway and you're like, it kind of looks like there's a puddle. Yeah. And like a bird might land on it thinking it's a puddle. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like that is actually the kind of mirage they're talking about, which I didn't realize. Um, and the cartoon version where you're in a desert and all of a sudden there's an oasis and people are like, it's a mirage. That's not a mirage. That's a hallucination. Yeah. Probably caused by dehydration. Probably. That's not a thing. You don't just like see trees and stuff that aren't there. That's not what a mirage is. No. Anyways. So if you happen to see the sun through a mirage. As it's just going as over. As the green rim of the sun crosses through that mirage, it will be magnified for a few seconds. And the images are going to stretch vertically. Okay. And that's going to allow us to view that green flash. Um, and there are many types of mirages, apparently, and I wasn't going to go into that because that just sounds extensive, extensively off topic, like yeah. more than my usual off topicness. Okay. Um, and, you know, also sounded complicated and physics is hard. So um, the type of mirage is going to determine what kind of green flash you see. 
Anyways, I just thought that was cool, and it was it about cool. refraction, so I thought I'd include it after the rainbow thing. Of course. This yeah. all makes sense. Yeah. Um, but that's that's all I got. I think that's all the colors this guy can be. I mean, it's black that at night. like, all also. the colors, basically. It's black at night. I didn't mention that. The sky is black at night. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, tips. You probably, <laughs> you probably know why the sky is black at night. Yeah. Because the earth turns on its axis. Yeah. Away from the sun, and the moon is not... Enough light. Yeah. They have all the same effects. Yeah. It's dark. Makes sense. Yeah. So I do want to thank everyone for listening to our show. Um, we have an email. We do. Teach me something four, which yes. is the number four numeral, not the word four at gmail.com. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm.